Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Man, you can be seated. But you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, as we begin looking at this section of exploring the Bible. I read about an interview recently that was done by New York Times Book Review. They periodically interview different authors and ask about some of the books they're reading right now, what they think about what they've read. And they inter- uh, interviewed a screenwriter, Judd Apatow. They asked him questions about the books he was reading. One of the questions they asked at the end of the interview, what book did you feel you were supposed to like and didn't. And then, do you remember the last book you put down without finishing it? Immediately, he said, the Bible. It's just not working for me. He said, I wish it was. Wouldn't it be great if it did work for me and I had the peace one gets when knowing that the universe is just and kind and guided by an eternal intelligence? And then he says, maybe I'm just getting it all wrong. I think a lot of people would say that about the Bible. It's just not working for me. And we've reminded ourselves as we've gone through this exploring the Bible this last few weeks that that it is God's revelation of himself to us. We need to accept it as that. We move now from looking at the Gospels. We looked at the harmony of the Gospels last week, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now into the discussion of the church and the New Testament letters. And it will wrap up our survey of the New Testament. So if you would look at Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them. By many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' words written by Luke letting us know that this is ushering in a new, a new age for the people of God. Jesus' promise as he goes to ascend to the Father is I'm going to send another to you. I'm going to send my spirit to empower, to indwell, and to make the church the church. So we're going to look at the, some periods of church history and then just look at some of the letters that have been written that make up our New Testament, the epistles. First of all, these periods in New Testament, the New Testament church, the first era is the emerging church. It's Acts 1 through 11 basically covers this, the emerging church, the birth of the church, which we'll read about in a moment in Acts chapter 2, and then the emergence of the church. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound of that violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire were divided, appeared to them, and rested on each of them. 
Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in chapter 1. The one truth that I want us to glean from this section of Scripture is this. God's Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in His church. God's Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in His church. Now, remember, the church is not this building. The church is not these walls and, and this, this roof or any, any of the facilities. The church is the people of God. God calls together his people. That's the word church is the called out ones. And he fills them, empowers them with his spirit. That's what he's describing here in Acts chapter 2. It's so important to understand that, that the Holy Spirit now, as of this account, this, this event, empowers the church and dwelling in the church permanently. I was reading about the Aswan High Dam in Egypt. They built it on the Nile River, and it's a a perfect description of of explaining how the Holy Spirit has worked through Scripture. What what they said was as they began to build that dam, they closed off most of the Nile, but they left some of the Nile to flow through because people downstream had to get their source of water, drinking water, watering their crops, everything that they needed from the Nile. So they had the source going to them, but it wasn't full power. When they finished building that dam and let all the water go through those generators and they generated enough power, it could light up all of all the cities in Egypt. And that's kind of a picture, I thought, of the Holy Spirit. As we look at the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament, God's Holy Spirit is there. He's working. He's giving life. You read the Holy Spirit rested on David. The Holy Spirit rested on Jeremiah, on Isaiah, on Daniel. Those periods where God came and empowered and dwelled in and filled people for ministry. But in the Old Testament context, the Holy Spirit uh, temporarily indwelt people, temporarily rested on people. In the New Testament era, the Holy Spirit rests in us. See the difference? As of, as of Pentecost, we just read about in chapter 2, God's Holy Spirit doesn't just come and, and use us and then leave. He indwells us. When we receive Christ as personal Lord and Savior, God's Holy Spirit comes to live within us. We have Him permanently residing in us. I think that's a significant truth. As the church is born, we are a part of that, and the Spirit indwells us permanently. Let me just quickly look at these other three uh, periods of church history uh, that's described in the book of Acts. The expanding church is the second, the second era, the expanding church. Acts chapter 12 through 17 covers this. This covers Paul's first and second missionary journeys, the writing of some of those early books, uh, the book of Galatians and, and First and Second Thessalonians. Then we have the suffering church, Acts chapter 18 through 20. This is where is recorded in the book of Acts Paul's third missionary journey, uh, at this point, uh, Nero becomes emperor of Rome, and, and he is hostile towards Christians. And you may know the story of Rome being burned and it being blamed on Christians. There's some persecution that takes place, and the church is suffering. During that time, Paul writes Romans and First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, some of the key New Testament books while the church is suffering. And then lastly, the consolidated church, uh, or the gathered church, however you would want to say that. It's Acts chapter 21 through 28. Paul's description of his missionary journey, of his journey back to Jerusalem and then ultimately going to Rome. You have in that section of Scripture, in that part of the book of Acts, the, the church coming together and to be more of a formal structure. You have bishops and elders and, uh, and deacons and those things taking up offices within the church. And that's where the church became more of an, an organized structure. So that's just an overview of the church in the New Testament as described in the book of Acts. But the letters about that are the rest of the book of the New Testament, the rest of the books in the New Testament. So now let's look at those letters, the New Testament letters. They're called epistles. I remember when I was a new Christian, they told me epistles are not the wives of the apostles. 
That, that helped me. Epistles are letters that are written by different individuals to the churches to encourage them. And we have these letters preserved now as parts of our scripture. The first of all, the early epistles of Paul. Galatians, the first and second Thessalonians, the early epistles. I just tried to, to pray through and, 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 and ask the Lord to give me just one concept or one truth from this whole section of Paul's writings. So if you take Galatians and first and second Thessalonians, the one truth that I, that I, I want us to highlight today is this, that in Christ, we have been set free from the need to perform. Let me say that again. In Christ, we have been set free from the need to perform. Look with me at the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Verse 1. Galatians 5, 1. Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. That yoke of slavery is the bondage of sin and trying to, to earn salvation on our own. Paul says you have been liberated to be free. Isn't that great? You've been freed to be free. You've been liberated to be liberated. There is freedom in Christ. And look at verse, eight, uh, verse 6 with me. He summarizes, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Now the discussion that Paul addresses in Galatians is legalism. We talked about it some when we went through the book of Romans. What people were saying was, the Jews especially, were saying not only do you need Jesus, but you need to be circumcised. To be a, a genuine Christian, you need to have circumcision, the right of Judaism. And then people were saying, no, you didn't do that. Some people were saying, that's the only way you can be saved. Paul says it doesn't make any difference. That's an outward sign. Remember, we looked at that in Romans. What matters is your relationship with Christ. You have been set free from performance. You've been set free from some rite or ritual that would make you more appealing to God. We have no longer the need to perform. John R. Stott says this about this discussion of circumcision in Galatians. He says, it is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can. Can I paraphrase what he's saying? Don't say that you can be saved in Christ alone, and then claim you have to add something to it to be saved. It doesn't go together. You are saved by grace through faith alone. Nothing added to Christ is necessary. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Anything added to that is not grace. Jesus plus circumcision is not grace. Jesus plus baptism is not grace. Jesus plus church membership is not grace. Jesus plus you being the best you can be is not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. I receive it by faith. So important. In Christ, we've been set free from the need to perform. You need to recognize that. There's nothing in and of yourself you can do to make yourself pleasing to God, to make yourself acceptable to him. The Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. So important. Read about a long jumper, German long jumper, uh, Bianca Kapler, competing in the indoor uh, games. And she did a long jump, and when she was finished, they gave her the gold medal for the longest jump, and then they told her it was 22 feet, 10 inches, and she said, no way. She handed the medal right back. She said, I can't jump that far. There's no way. You've made a mistake. And sure enough, they had made a mistake. She, they'd measured it wrong. She acknowledged that there's no way she could jump as far as, and as long as they said she could. No way. That's what we all need to do. We need to acknowledge there's no way we can jump high enough, far enough, fast enough to be able to say, God, I'm good enough to get to heaven. The Bible says 
When, when the Bible says we fall short of the glory of God, it means the glory of God, there's a standard, perfection, holiness. I can't jump high enough. There's no way. It, it, would, be, it would be like me saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swim from the Texas coast to Cancun. And I get out there, and, and you may be able to swim farther than I am. You may be able to swim twice as far, ten times as far, but nobody's going to swim all the way. That's, that's, that's sin. Nobody can make it except Christ. He kept the law. He was perfect, sinless. We've been set free from the need to perform. Wayne Jacobson says it this way, abandoning our own attempts to establish our own worthiness is central to the power of the gospel. I have to say, nothing in me, Christ only. That's the early epistle, kind of a one truth out of there. Let's look at the next grouping of letters, the major epistles, First and Second Corinthians and Romans, the major epistles of Paul. Here's my truth from 1 Corinthians that I want us to highlight, and it, it, it dovetails on what we just said. We follow the person of Jesus, not personalities in his church. We are called to follow the person of Jesus, not personalities in his church. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say and that you be united in the same understanding and the same conviction. That's unity. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is a rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? Rhetorical questions. Here's what Paul is saying. As he looks at the church at Corinth, he he gets a testimony about them. Some were bragging about their leaders. I I follow Paul. He's the one. If you don't follow Paul, you're not in. No, I follow Apollos. He's the one. If you don't follow Apollos, you're not in. Oh, I follow Cephas. I follow Peter. Some were even trying to be super spiritual and say, well, we follow Jesus. And they were putting that, putting that in, a, in a super spiritual way. Here's what Paul is saying in this passage. Don't say you follow a person unless you're saying you're going to follow the person of Christ, not personalities. There, there's this sense that Paul was addressing in the church at Corinth of some people think they're the haves and, the have, and you're, they're the haves and you're the have-nots. Because they follow this person, and you don't. J. Vernon McGee said, these were just spiritual snobs. I like that. They were being exclusive while they excluded others. You say, well, I would never do that. Well, we have a tendency to. We, we follow our own person personality. Whoever it is, it may be somebody that, that's good. You say, well, I follow Charles Stanley. And if you don't agree with him, there's something wrong with you. I've, oh, I'm really spiritual because I do K. Arthur. That's real spiritual. No, well, I, I, I like David Jeremiah. So you, you say, if you're not in that camp, then there's something wrong with you. You're not in the right camp. Paul says, be careful about that. Paul specifically was talking about leaders in the local church. And, and he's saying, don't just follow the person, the personality. Follow the person of Christ. So important. I am called to be the shepherd of this congregation, which means to lead, to feed, to protect. I'm called to be the shepherd. And, and I understand the Bible calls you to follow God-given leaders, but I am not the head of the church. Okay? Got that? That would be a good place to say amen. That I am not the head of the church. The Lord Jesus is the head of the church. 
I'm his under shepherd and overseer. I'm, I'm under his authority. We follow him. So when it becomes all about, well, my pastor says or my guru says or my person says, focus on Christ. We have to be careful about thinking we have the exclusive interpretation of a, of a theology or a philosophy or a, an end times uh, understanding. Follow Christ. We were teaching a single Sunday school class when we were newlyweds and um, just a really neat opportunity to see some, some young people come to Christ and nurturing them and, and discipling them. And uh, one of the young ladies that seemed to really be growing just disappeared. And we lost track of her. She, we couldn't get in touch with her. And we started to get notes on our apartment door. She would come by where Kelly and I lived and leave a note. She had found a new church that had the truth. And she wanted us to come to them because she had now found the truth and we obviously didn't have the truth. What she had embraced was a teaching that said there's this exclusive experience you have to have to go to heaven and be the spiritual elite. And obviously we didn't have it. And it broke my heart because somebody told her we've got a handle on the truth. Be careful if anybody tells you they have a handle on the truth. If they tell you they're the only ones that know the truth, that's a red flag. You know, that's the first sign of a cult. The first indication of a cult is when they say we're the only ones that have it right. Second follow-up issue with a cult is they, they're usually off on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you're curious, ask someone, what do you believe about Jesus? And what do you believe about the truth? A big caution there. It's about him, not us. I love the account of an elderly lady who loved to memorize scripture. One of her favorites was 2 Timothy 1.12. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We made a hymn out of it. And as years went by and she couldn't remember the whole verse, she just, she just remembered parts of it. And instead of saying the whole verse, she would just say, he is able, he is able, he is able. And then she got even older and more uh, feeble, and all she could say was him, him, him. I thought, that's a good way to end. When you, if you're going to memorize Scripture, just remember Jesus. If you're going to talk about following a, a, a plan, a purpose, just remember to follow him. We follow the person of Jesus. Number three, the third section of these epistles are the prison epistles. We have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Paul writes these epistles from prison. You would think that while Paul's in prison, the church would be writing him letters saying, hang in there, we're praying for you. It wasn't that way. Paul wrote letters to encourage the church in the midst of his suffering. Here's the truth from this passage of Scripture, these epistles. Believers are equipped to do the ministry. Believers, that's you, those who know Christ as Savior, are the ones who are equipped to do the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he, speaking of Jesus, personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. You won't be going off to those groups that say they have a handle on the truth. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way unto him who is the head Christ. For him, 
the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Paul says here's a description of the body of believers coming together, growing together, doing ministry together. He says God calls pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists to equip the saints, which is the people of the church, believers, to do the work of the ministry. My calling as a pastor, a teacher, is to train and equip the people to do the work of the ministry. It's not to do the work of the ministry. Now, I do the work of the ministry. That's what I do. I, I do ministry, but I am my primary role is to equip you to do ministry. There's an old view that said to be a good Christian is you go to church and you pray for the pastor and you encourage him and you give. And he or the rest of the staff will do all the work because that's what we pay him for. That's the old view. The biblical view, by the way, that's the generation I grew up with. That's kind of the mindset we had. The biblical view is God gives people like me to the church as a gift of the church to equip and train the church to do ministry. I visited my home church a while back that I'd grown up in and uh, just went to visit and the pastor was preaching. He was pouring out his heart about how over the past year, he was kind of doing some reflecting. They hadn't done a very good job as a church of reaching their community. They haven't baptized very many people. They hadn't seen people growing in discipleship. He just pouring out his heart as to where he saw the church. And there were two little ladies sitting in front of me. And one of them leaned over to the other and said, bless his heart. He worked so hard. Bless his heart. And I, they may have said, let's pray for him. You know what they heard? They heard that the pastor was working hard and nothing was working. And they just said, well, we've got to pray for him. You know what the message, the sermon was? The pastor was trying to say, it's your role, church, to do the ministry. They didn't even get it. They missed it. Some of you miss it. We, we paint the picture. We try to cast the vision. We, we talk about the lostness of our community, the lostness of the world, and you just say, oh, bless his heart. We'll have to give more, maybe pray more. God calls me to equip and enable you to do the work of the ministry. I love the story Billy Waters tells about a little girl who had been in an accident and they had to amputate her arm and she really tried to live in isolation but finally got to the point her mother convinced her you can go to church now, you can go to Sunday school, it'll be all right and the girl was ready to go and kind of get back in the stream of things at church and so the mama called the Sunday school teacher and said, now my daughter's coming, you know her accident, she's, she's missing that arm now. Would you please make sure the kids don't make fun of her? They don't ridicule her. They don't embarrass her. And please, and so the teacher said, I've got it. It'll be fine. The night before, this happens all the time. Saturday night, what happens? Sunday school teacher gets sick. And a substitute steps in. Praise God for substitutes, right? But the substitute hadn't been included on that. And the substitute had planned to close the, the Sunday school lesson with, with, you know, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. And so she's leading all the kids to do this. And this little girl only has one arm. And a little boy sitting next to her recognizes that, and he reaches over and puts his arm in with her. And between the two of them, they were able to do the church and the steeple and the people. I thought, there's a great picture of the church. We may not be amputees, but we, we sure are broken, aren't we? And we're to come alongside each other and do ministry together. You're equipped to do that. That's your role. Number four, the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles of Paul. First and Second Timothy and Titus. This is where Paul is writing to young pastors. First Timothy chapter six is what I'd like us to, to highlight this one truth today. Here's the truth. Paul shares it with Timothy, and I think it I know it's for us. We are called to grow spiritually. 
we are called to grow spiritually. Look with me at chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 11. But you, man of God, run from these things. He's just listed a bunch of evil things to run from. You, man of God, run from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Pursue righteousness, he says. Pursue godliness. Fight the good fight for the faith. Take hold of eternal life that you were called to and have made a a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. Paul says you are called to grow spiritually. This This is the mandate for us. The Christian life is not about receiving Jesus as Savior and then coming to church. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is about discipleship. It's about giving your life to Christ, receiving Him as Savior, and following Him, and making your whole life about Him. Every area of your life, your finances, your relationships, what you do, it's all about Him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about discipleship. I love this statement. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. If you're going to be a Christ follower, you know what you have to do? Follow Christ. Not just go to church. Follow Christ. That means to be immersed in his word. That means to be in small relational gatherings where you're nurtured and, and, and encouraged and there's accountability. That means living out your spiritual life. Spiritual growth is not something mystical. It's not something for an elite few. It's for the whole body of believers. Ephesians 4, I just read, he talks about till we all reach unity, till we reach full maturity. That's God's desire for us, that we grow. And it it happens by, by implementing, pursuing Christ with the spiritual disciplines. We've been encouraging you to read your Bible. We've been doing a Bible overview this whole uh, month so that you can be reminded of the big picture so that we have the, the reading guide out there in the foyer, the, this lavender um, 180 days of God's redemptive story so that you can see the big picture and, and be involved in taking the word of God, God's love letter to you, and immersing yourself in it. But Paul says this, pursue it. It's not just going to happen automatically. You have to be disciplined. You have to follow him. Someone said, men do not decide their future. They decide their habits, and their habits decide their future. If you're not in the habit of spending time in God's word, if you're not in the habit of praying, your life is not going to change. You're not going to be following Christ. You may be a Christian in name only. Remember when the children of Israel, we talked about this in our overview of Old Testament, took possession of the promised land, and God said, here you have it, but then he said, now you're going to have to take these cities. It's kind of a, a, a paradox there. He said, well, I, I thought you gave me the promised land. He said, okay, I gave it to you. But there's some places here you're going to have to fight for. It's a picture of my, my discipleship. It's this, this tension in Scripture that the Bible says, in Christ I'm a new creation. All things have passed. All things have become new. Yet in Christ, <clears throat> I'm, I'm supposed to be growing and becoming like Christ. So it's, I am, and I am becoming like him. We're called to grow. Are you growing? The fifth section of letters are the general epistles. Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, they're general epistles because most of them don't have an address. They're just written to the church, circulated. Here's my truth from this section. It's out of Hebrews 11. We have a certainty. 
that is grounded and rooted in God, in God alone. We have a certainty that is rooted in God. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For our ancestors won God's approval by it. That's by faith. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by God's command so that what is seen has been made from the things that are not visible. The writer of Hebrews says faith is an assurance. It's a certainty. It's rooted in him. My salvation and my eternal security is not based in how good I can be. It's not based in my performance. See, we have this mindset that, that, that we've wrongly adopted, that I'm saved by grace and I'm kept by works. That means if I, if I mess up or don't do enough, God's going to take away my salvation. My salvation is secure in Christ and Christ alone and what he's done. I don't have to perform to keep it any more than I had to perform to get it. It's all about grace. And my certainty in that is rooted in the character and the person of God himself. His, his character backs up the reality of this promise that he's given us, a certainty. You can be sure. I remember when my kids were growing up and they got to that age and pastor's kids asked this question, Dad, how do we know that we're right? How do you know that what you teach and preach is the, is, is the only truth? I said, that's a great question. Let me get back to you on that. <laughs> I, I just affirmed, I said, you know what, I, by faith, I'm, I'm trusting in God's word and God's person and God's character, and you can trust him too. By faith. There's a certainty there. And I, as our kids grew and I, I tried to share by my life, as I've tried to here, is that we can trust him. We just sang about it. Do you know what? One of my favorite songs to listen to you sing is Good, Good Father. It's incredible because you sing out. You know why? Because you know that your faith is rooted in him. Because he's good. I read this week about just an interesting development, and I hadn't thought about this. Because I studied this. I was a geology major in college, and I studied plate tectonics and shifting continents and all that stuff. And um, the GPS that is global positioning with satellites marks the spot, right? And they can track us, know where you are. Your phone does it. It's amazing. But the continent of Australia moves every year a little bit. Since 1994, I think the continent has moved like five feet or something like that. That wreaks havoc with the GPS system. They, this article I read was from 2016, uh, 2016. They had not recalibrated the GPS since 94, and so everything was off. You know the guy who's running the tractor? You know some of those tractors plow on GPS? Those are messed up. Everything else was messed up because the continent moves. And I thought, you, if you can't trust the continent of, of, of uh Australia not to move, what can you trust in? This? This isn't going to move. This does not have to be recalibrated. We don't have to recalibrate this. Now, we might have to recalibrate our lives to line up with it, but we have a certainty. I love that. And the last book is this book of prophecy. Remember we looked at the Old Testament had multiple books of prophecy, the minor prophets, the major prophets. The New Testament just has one book of prophecy. It's the Revelation the book of the Revelation, which is about the end, right? The revealing, the apocalypse, the end. I love the story about the two guys who are pounding a sign in on a road, and, and the sign said, the end is near. And this guy drives by in his car and screams at him and waves at him and says, you religious fanatics. And then he goes around the corner, and the guys hear a crash and a, 
another crash and a thud and a splash. And the one guy looks at the other and says, you know, maybe we shouldn't have been so creative with our sign. We should have just written bridges out. The message of Revelation is the end is near. Literally, the end is near. Here's, here's my truth to leave us with today. We have an invitation that needs to be accepted. We have an invitation that needs to be accepted. Look with me at Revelation 22, verse 17. What a way to wrap up God's revelation of himself to us. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take of the living water as a gift. What does that not sound like, uh, Ephesians? By grace you've been saved, it's a gift of God. Look at verse 20. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. There's an invitation that closes Scripture, and the invitation is this. If you are thirsty spiritually, you need Christ. And he says, come. In John chapter 1, John wrote, to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. There has to be this acceptance. There has to be this receiving of the gift. I love the story, and and it's used so many times. If, If I were to take this pen and monogram your name on it, and say this is for you, and I say say this is an expensive pen, okay? Just pretend with me. It's a Mont Blanc or whatever, okay? And I, I engrave your name on it, and I purchase it, and I say, here is a gift for you. It's been paid for. It has your name on it. If you just look at that pen and say, that's nice, thank you, but you never take the pen, you have never received it. doesn't do you any good, does it? You can talk all day about how it's been paid for, but until you take that pen... You haven't received it. That's the gospel. Jesus says, I I gave my life for you. I died for you. I'm extending grace to you. You have to receive it. And the way the Bible talks about receiving it is by confessing that we've sinned, that Jesus Christ paid the price for our salvation. There's nothing I can do in and of myself to earn it. And by faith, invite him to come into my life, to take up residence in me. That's by the person of the Holy Spirit, to, to be my Savior. If you've never done that, I want you to know today would be a good day to accept the invitation. Let's pray together.